and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Today as we continue again in our uh, new series through Ecclesiastes. If you were with us last week, we heard the unsettling message, intentionally unsettling message, that everything's vanity. Everything here at least. Uh, everything in this vain and fleeting life. And today we're going to begin a section of Ecclesiastes where Solomon will begin to recount to us the many vanities that we can find around us. Today, finishing out chapter 1 of Ecclesiastes, as we hear of the vanity of wisdom. That's on page 553, if you pick up a Bible on the way in. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, today reading verses 12 through the end of the chapter in verse 18. And before we read this word together, let's go and seek God's blessing Again, through prayer, let's pray. O Lord, our God, we pray that you would give us quiet hearts to sit before you. As that dear uh, sister of old sat at your feet uh, to hear what you had to say. O Lord, we pray that you would do the same for us. That we would sit at this word and, uh, and though some of it may be troubling to us, we would be troubled uh, toward you. Uh, we would be uh, inclined, as you incline us by your spirit, to hear a word of Christ. Help us, O oh Lord, to hear him even here. As we hear the vanity of wisdom, help us to set our minds to a wisdom that is higher and fuller and greater in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now God's word as we find it in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning to read in verse 12. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Thus far the reading of God's holy in an errant word, may he had a blessing as we study it together today. It is uh, officially fall in New England, and that means that it's orchard season. And that means that uh, you have probably to the end of the month to, uh, to go to your favorite local farm and catch a hayride and, and eat some fresh cider donuts, maybe feed a goat or two. Uh, and if it's your sort of thing, you can take in that other New England fall tradition, the corn maze. A good bit of clean family fun. A 20-minute stroll through, through walls of green, never really feeling quite as lost as you hope to feel for the price of admission. But you can go and you can, you can walk through that corn maze and come out on the other side feeling okay and having a good time. But every once in a while, well, these things turn into more of an adventure than most of us are looking for. It happened that way 10 years ago at the Connors Farm in Danvers. 
the Connors farm has a corn maze, a large corn maze, seven acres worth of corn maze to be exact. It takes most people about an hour to make it at a pretty good clip, start to finish. And in October 2011, a young family of four, not the Kerrs, by the way, we were in the area at the time, we were only a family of three, but in 2011, October, a young family of four entered the maze in the afternoon and got disoriented. Before long, the sun set and the farm stand closed, and they were left in the field by themselves in the dark. Now, to make matters worse, this was the first family outing since the birth of this family's second child, who was at this point only three weeks old. There are mother and father, a five-year-old son and a three-week-old daughter out in the middle of a field lost in the darkness, and after two frantic calls to 911, the police found the family and had the help of a team of rescue dogs tracking them down. And when they found them, they were almost to the end. 25 feet from the road, they almost made it. Now, hopefully now it's the kind of thing that they can look back on and they can laugh about together, maybe as we laugh about it on their behalf. But at the time, could you imagine how frightening it must have been? And you imagine that growing sense of desperation in the darkness. At first, you... You trudge along, you, you have a, a hopefulness about everything, you expect that the next turn is going to be the one. That's the turn that's going to lead you out and, and lead you back to your car and, and the warmth of your home. But that next turn turns into a dead end, and the one after it turns into a dead end, and every dead end becomes a frustration, and then there's that sense that, that safety and, and release is further away now than it was when you first started. Now today we're beginning this section of Ecclesiastes here that, that the preacher describes for us his own experience of tracing down one dead end after another. Starting here in verse 12, the book takes on a first-person narrative. We heard in verses 1 to 11 talking about what the preacher was going to teach us, and now we hear the preacher himself, I the preacher, king over Israel and Jerusalem, and he begins to give us the litany of ways that, that he was searching for, for, uh, for significance. He says he applies his heart to seek and search out all that's done after under heaven. It's the search for uh, the ultimate questions, ultimate meaning in this vain life under the sun. Lord willing, for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at some of the dead ends, some of the blind alleys that, uh, that Solomon will take us uh, on a tour through to show us the places where humanity looks for significance in this vain and fleeting life. Today, we're going to look just at the first dead end, just the dead end, the path of earthly wisdom. We're going to see, I hope, with Solomon's help, how, how insufficient our earthly wisdom is to lead us to eternal significance. The insufficiency of our earthly wisdom. In fact, that's a good place to begin as we, we contemplate earthly wisdom. We need to begin with the inability of human wisdom to make sense of the human predicament. In verses uh, 11 to 15, really, we're still looking at introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's not until verse 
12 that Solomon's going to begin to show us all of these attempts to, to squeeze significance out of this life. He's going to teach us in the next few weeks about the life of the mind, the pleasures of the body. He's going to, to teach us about the way of wisdom, the way of workaholism. We're going to see each of his attempts, one after another. We're going to examine them. But here in verses 12 to 15, we're not yet considering Solomon's attempts. We're only considering so far the idea of attempting in the first place. That means in verse 13, the text tells us, I applied my heart to seek and search out all that's done under heaven, and it, there's the word you need to see, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man. What's he talking about there? What does the pronoun refer to? Does it refer to all the things that we do, or does it refer to the searching and seeking to make sense of it? I think that's what Solomon is telling us. It most likely refers to the process of searching, and that means if if that uh, understanding is correct, that verse 13 is a comment not on the various forms of happiness that we pursue, but on the whole pursuit of happiness altogether. You understand the difference. One person comes along and says, I think that botany is the most interesting of all the sciences. Another person says, no, actually, chemistry is really where it's at because there's chemistry underneath of all the other things going on. And somebody else says, well, it's all just physics uh, put into play, isn't it? And somebody else comes along and says, I'm not really a science person. <laughs> you know, here I am among all you engineers and programmers, and that's how I feel sometimes. I'm just not a science person. I like it. I can track with it, but it, it's not for me. That's verse 13. It's an unhappy business. I'm, I'm seeking, I'm searching, I'm looking for all these things, but... You know, the whole thing is an unhappy business, Solomon is telling us. No matter how you slice it, no matter how you, how you attempt it, Solomon wants you to know that human rationalizations and earthly evaluations will never lead to eternal significance. You cannot find meaning where meaning isn't meant to be found. I've seen it all, he says in verse 14. Everything that's done under the sun, behold, it's all vanity. It's a striving after wind. That's Solomon's new favorite phrase that's going to show up over and over again, a striving after wind. And perhaps you remember that tall tale about Pecos Bill. Uh, from uh, the American Wild West, Pecos Bill was raised by coyotes in the Texas desert. One day, as a man and a cow puncher, he takes his 50-foot rattlesnake lasso and catches a hold of a tornado and rides it bareback all the way from Dallas to Death Valley. Well, in a tall tale, we expect that sort of thing. Reality doesn't matter much, and, and we expect them to be a bit preposterous. That's the fun of a tall tale. You can talk about catching the wind and, and grappling with a hurricane if reality doesn't matter, but it's almost insulting. In fact, I think it's intentionally insulting when Solomon applies that same idea here to our pursuits after significance in this life. Are you able to shepherd a cyclone? Are you able to herd a hurricane? Well, well, your efforts would be more fruitful in those tasks than they would be in trying to ponder which human endeavors can leave behind something profitable, something permanent. That's a warning to us, again, before we, we get into each of the avenues and the areas that we search out for significance. It's a warning for us up front, this, this sign hanging over us before we enter the labyrinth that tells us to abandon all hope, ye who enter. And we need that warning. 
We need that warning because as a species, as a people, we are uh, indefatigably confident about our ability to figure our way out of whatever mess we happen to find ourselves in. One of the unofficial slogans of the Marine Corps is to improvise, adapt, and overcome. And Many of us live as though that's the point of life. Many of us uh, live as though eventually if we just try hard enough, uh, that strategy is going to lead us to that meaning and that significance that we look for. And so we pivot. We're always pivoting. One thing uh, shows itself to be disappointing, and we'll find something else to sink our hopes into, won't we? We hit a wall in one direction, and we turn and go the other way. We meet with disappointment in our job, and, and we convince ourselves that probably the next career is going to be the one that we always wanted. The next boss is going to be much easier to work for than the one we've currently got. The next paycheck is going to be more fulfilling than the one that we're taking home right now. The next, the next whatever it might be. Well, we feel like we're in a dead-end relationship, and so we imagine that a new relationship, or perhaps maybe no relationship at all, is the answer to all of our problems. We feel dissatisfied with the mountain of baubles and gadgets and accessories that we've filled our lives with, and yet we somehow still manage to tell ourselves that the next thing we buy, oh, that's going to be the one. I'm going to buy this, and I'll never need another. Oh, apart from the wisdom of God, we often bounce from one bad answer to another bad answer, from, from one end de dead end to another dead end, and from one empty promise to another empty promise. And left to our own devices, sometimes the best we can do in this life with our own earthly wisdom is to be like Dory from Finding Nemo. We just keep swimming. We just keep swimming, and we, we tell ourselves while we're swimming that eventually that will lead us somewhere significant, somewhere that we can make sense of it all if we just keep going. Solomon says, don't bother. Not unless you can also catch a tornado. Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, there are problems that human ingenuity and understanding cannot fix. There are crookednesses baked into creation that human striving can't straighten out. There are things missing that worldly wisdom can't supply. If you happen to have more bills coming in than you have money to pay those bills, counting and recounting your money isn't going to make the difference suddenly appear. In fact, the more you balance the books, the more you will find nothing but that stinging disappointment that you actually are in the red. You know, what is lacking can't be counted. It sounds depressing. As much of Ecclesiastes sounds depressing on the surface, I'll grant that. But again, know that Solomon is preparing us for something hopeful. This idea of straightening out that which is, is crooked, this is a bit of foreshadowing. This is going to come back. So take this line and tuck it away in your memory, and we'll come back to it maybe in a few months. In, in, in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 13, he'll say, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Well, the frustration of our inability to find the answer to our insignificance comes from our dogged determination to try and find the answer in our own ways by our own standards and on our own terms. 
There are crookednesses that can't be straightened out by the strength of our searching. On the other hand, there is a God, God who can make straight paths for our feet. There is a God who makes all things beautiful in their time, he'll tell us in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. There's a God who provides for us what we can't provide for ourselves. And in Ecclesiastes 2, he says, who gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to the one who pleases him. These are glimpses. They're tiny blips on the radar screen as we see the dial going around, reminding us that there's something hidden behind the shadow of our mortality that we can't quite put our fingers on yet. And the way that we, we view from our vantage point, there's something that we can't quite account for if we're looking for significance according to earthly terms. There is a God, a God of wisdom and a God of purpose. There is a God who can be trusted with the questions that we can't solve on our own. And just as we began last week, so our mortal frustrations will either lead us to despair, either the despair of, of ending it all, as some do, or the despair of simply giving up the search altogether. They'll either, either lead us to despair or they'll lead us to faith. We'll either be exhausted by our inability to make sense of it or we'll turn to the one who can make sense of it for us. Here's the first thing we need to learn from Solomon today, and that is that our earthly attempts at significance will always come up short. Always. Count on it. We can't produce for ourselves what only God can give to us, and when we try, we embark on a journey that has no destination. Secondly, we need to know that even wisdom is worthless without guidance from God. Even wisdom. Now here is the point at which I probably have to try and convince you of the premise that I've been assuming so far for half of a sermon. And that premise is that when Solomon speaks, mostly in these verses here, about wisdom, he's not talking about the kind of wisdom that we expect to find in the pages of Scripture. There are various kinds of wisdoms, aren't there? There are various versions of street smarts, and you can find them in every culture. How do you get along? How do you make sense of what's around you? There are different wisdoms. The Greeks seek for wisdom, says Paul in the New Testament, not the wisdom that we know and love. And so when Solomon says in this passage that he applied his heart with wisdom, he's not speaking of wisdom as we're used to seeing it. Of course, God's wisdom is an unmitigated blessing. That's how it always shows up in the Bible. It's that virtue in Proverbs that we're told to acquire at all costs. Proverbs 8, wisdom is better than jewels. All that you may desire cannot compare with her. Wisdom is the blessing that adds long life and prosperity to the one who has it. The way of wisdom, Proverbs 3, leads to pleasantness and peace and riches and honor. Many are the benefits of wisdom not the least of which is the first and the foundational virtue of wisdom, the fear of the Lord. Well, the fear of the Lord is that wisdom that sets our feet on solid ground. It makes us fruitful in season and out of season. The fear of the Lord makes us content to rest in what God has said is good and righteous and true and not what we devise for ourselves. Well, the fear of the Lord burns away the dross of, of our self-indulgent desires. It clears away the clutter of every false wisdom that tries to pass itself off as the real thing. And it's the absence of the fear of the Lord that should be our first indication that we're not dealing with typical biblical wisdom in this passage. 
Verse 16, our teacher explains, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over me, before me in Jerusalem. My heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. So far, so good. It sounds a little boastful to our taste, maybe, but it's exactly what we know of Solomon's life, what we, what we read about in 1 Kings chapter 4. Then God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. He promised to Solomon he would be so wise that he would be beyond any king who'd ever come before him and beyond any king who would ever come after him. This is what we know of Solomon. God gave him wisdom. He was a man uniquely blessed with knowledge and insight to lead the people of God in the fear of the Lord. Oh, if he would have stopped there. But he doesn't stop there. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom. But then verse 17, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. There's the rub. This is wisdom that doesn't know when to stop. Derek Kidner explains this verse by reminding us that in Scripture, madness and folly, he says, imply moral perversity rather than mental oddity. That means these are categories of sin and righteousness. Not just poor choices, not just a wrong way of looking at things, not just somebody who's a little off. This is sin and righteousness. This isn't a description of the quiet life of the mind. Sitting back and contemplating as far as our minds will expand the competing worldviews that we can encounter. And, uh, you know, this is knowledge. This is knowledge in the Old Testament sense of the word. This is knowledge in the way that a wife knows her husband. This is knowledge in the way that Adam and Eve knew, had experiential knowledge of good and evil in the garden. This is knowledge as a matter of firsthand experience. Solomon says he dove heart first into a vast ocean of, of worldly wisdoms, of human philosophies. He tried on folly, he tried on speculation just to see how they made him feel. He held folly just the same as wisdom, just as valid as the word of God. The pursuit of wisdom itself became one more destinationless journey. And sadly, this is also what we know of Solomon's life from Scripture. Yes, Solomon was filled with God's wisdom, but he was also taken captive, as, as Paul might have said it, as he did say it, taken captive by philosophies and empty deceit. According to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. Solomon was taken captive by the idea that more wisdom would be enough. And so he got more, and he got more, and he got more, and he got more, and it never stopped. There was no boundary. There was no end point. So Solomon married many exotic women. And he flirted with their many exotic ideas. And eventually he followed both those women and those ideas into idolatry, into sin. And so scripture recalls for us how Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, the man who, who built the temple of Yahweh there in Jerusalem to gather the tribes of Israel in the place where the Lord would set his name, that Solomon also went on to build Altars for Chemosh and Milcom. He went to build shrines for Moloch and Ashtaroth and a host of the other gods from the nations surrounding Israel. Solomon's heart 
turned away from the Lord in turning to wisdom and folly. He pursued the vain things that the pagans trusted in. He was endowed with God's wisdom, but godly wisdom wasn't enough for Solomon. He was not content to hear the word of the Lord and take that as his boundary marker. He didn't make God's wisdom the measuring line on all the other world systems and and philosophies, and so eventually they all became the same. Wisdom was as good as folly. Folly was as good as madness. Madness is as good as wisdom, and the cycle repeats itself. Just so long as all he was experiencing was, was the promise of new revelations and new understandings and another new way to look at the world. But all these competing systems could not provide for Solomon was satisfaction. It was all just more striving after the wind. Verse 18 tells us, For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Do you remember being a child? Being a child and wanting so desperately to know what all those adults were always talking about. It seemed so important. And then you grew a little older and you got a little wiser and you wished that you could go back and unlearn some of those things that you've learned about the way that the world works. There is a form of wisdom that does nothing but fill our heads and our hearts with questions without answers. There is a wisdom that does nothing but categorize all of the sorrows that we see around us and never lifts a finger to alleviate any of those sorrows and those sufferings. There's a kind of powerless wisdom that Solomon has in mind here in verse 18. It's endless speculation with no divine guidance. It leads only to sorrow, only to vexation, never to the satisfaction that we're seeking at the end of the day, at the end of our vain lives. So maybe you're thinking, well, that's an awful lot about Solomon, but what about us? Of course, it is about us. It is about us because where Solomon went wrong is where we live and breathe and have our being every day in our pluralistic society. You know, the truth is that in Solomon's day, he was something of an anomaly. He was a king. He had access to all the wisdom of the nations in a way that the average Israelite would never have had access to the wisdom of the nations. The things they would never have encountered in their sleepy little agricultural existence. It's true that there was idolatry aplenty in Israel. But there is a difference, perhaps. Most of the idolatry in Israel was a common idolatry, a peasant idolatry, a folk idolatry. You understand, it was, it was worship for people whose entire fortunes rose and fell with the, with the success of a single harvest. And so for most Israelites, idolatry was viewed as a practical matter, like a form of farm insurance, in case the God that you prayed to first wouldn't actually make good on the promises to give you the crops that you need, let's cover all of our bases, let's gather a few more shrines, let's pray to a few more gods, and let's make sure that we come out okay in the end. It was idolatry that was trying to scrap by and, and, and pull itself along by fingernails. Well, that doesn't make that idolatry any less excusable than Solomon's idolatry, but it probably makes it less refined. It makes it less intellectually pretentious. Now Solomon didn't go from wisdom to madness to folly because he felt like he had no other choice. He did it because he could. 
because it was available to him, because it was dropped on his doorstep, because he had all the resources he could need at his disposal. And because there was a promise of greater enlightenment, greater experience. I mean, what kind of cosmopolitan world citizen would he have been if he simply was so narrow-minded to follow the God of his fathers? Surely he couldn't dismiss the wisdom of the nations without trying them out a bit first. And so now the college student goes off to their third semester world religions course. Not because they need to. It's just an elective. Nothing life and death about it, but it's there. It's presented to them. It's an opportunity that they can't pass up. And so the first class exercise encourages them to take their closed-minded Christianity that they grew up with and to put it on a shelf, and then to encounter all the worldviews of the world and to count them alike in wisdom and alike in value and alike in practical application. It's the smorgasbord approach to ultimate questions of life and eternity. It is what intelligent middle-class kids are expected to do. Because they can. Because it's available. Because you have the resources. And why wouldn't you go a little further? Don't you want to know what other cultures believe? And don't you want to try on a little bit of that for yourself? It's not just in the universities. You can fall down any number of social media rabbit holes or, or podcast uh, streams connecting you to the modern-day guides and gurus with their eclectic approach to wisdom. Right? It's, uh, well, it, it's the trauma healers. It's the mommy mentors. And you can find them on, on Instagram, and they take their little dash of nominal Christianity, and they mix it together with their own proprietary blend of pop psychology and tea tree oil. Right, it's, it's the business consultants. They combine breakthrough productivity hacks with new age mysticism. Because mindfulness meditation is the key to finally getting your life and your career where you want it to be. It's the fitness coaches who teach you how to bench press at 9 a.m. and then at 10 p.m. teach you how to drink psychedelic ayahuasca around a drum circle in the hopes of connecting with something primal the hopes of unleashing the strongest version of yourself. And if you think I'm just making these things up, we clearly don't exist in the same circles of the Internet. They're out there, and you encounter your own versions of them. They're at every meetup group you can find. They're in every town hall you can find. They're hidden in all the shows that your children are watching. It's there. And the point is that as our world has gotten smaller, as our world has gotten more connected, we are exposed to a greater diversity of worldviews and so-called wisdoms in a week or in a month than earlier generations might have encountered in a lifetime. And our godless society is part of the conspiracy to whisper in our ears that actually Solomon was probably wrong. If you just keep swimming, if you just keep looking, if you just keep learning you can arrive at your own significance, experiment a little bit with madness and folly and find your ultimate meaning. And you can find yours, and I can find mine, and everybody can find their own individual significance, and we can cobble it together from this mosaic of ancient philosophies and modern theories and all of these other worldviews put into one, and we can drink it all down and feel content. And the sales pitch for these things is always smooth and enticing comes into your screen, it comes through your headphones promising that this new approach 
is the one that's going to unravel the mysteries of the universe. Finally give you purpose in your life. But as we learned last week, there's nothing really new under the sun, is there? It's the same vain promise that invaded the courts of Solomon. It's the same aimless journey that captivated those Greeks, where in Acts chapter 17, we're told that all the Athenians and all the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Presumably until the next new thing came along. It is the insatiable approach. It's the approach that Paul warned Timothy about in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that in latter days people will be lovers of self. They'll be proud, they'll be arrogant, they'll be reckless, they'll be conceited, they'll have an appearance of godliness but deny its power. They will be always learning and never able to arrive at the truth. You know, of course, 2 Timothy chapter 3, it sets up that next section about the virtues of God's word able to equip us for every good work, pure and breathed out by God. Oh, but Paul's warning about the dead end of wisdom without boundaries. He's warning about that never-ending hamster wheel of searching for significance through one form of wisdom after another, one convoluted worldview after another. It's all just one more attempt to capture a cyclone. And so what's the answer? And the answer is that there is a wisdom that the restless world knows nothing about. There is a wisdom that is often overlooked because it does not sparkle with novelty. There is a wisdom that is rejected because at its core, this wisdom calls us to abandon our own hopes of figuring things out for ourselves. Well, there's a wisdom that comes from the God who made us upright at the beginning. A wisdom that's leading us to the beauty God's preparing for in the fullness of time. There's a wisdom who comes to us in a person. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 to 24. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. The answer is the gospel, which reminds us that God sent his son, not because our wisdom needs a little nudge in the right direction. God sent his son because we're lost. Because night is closing in and because we need to be rescued. And so Christ is the only wisdom that puts an end to our aimless wandering. He's the wisdom who gives us rest in God's goodness. And he calls all his people to come and to hear and to receive from him words of life. You remember those apostles in John chapter 6 when Jesus told that very challenging word about eating his flesh and drinking his blood and coming to him and some people heard it, who were perhaps listening or looking for something more, and they were offended, and they went away. And Jesus turns to his disciples, he says, what about you? You want to leave too? Where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of life. I, I've found the wisdom that I've always needed. I've found the only wisdom that can quench my soul. Where else can I go? I'm content 
to stop here. I'm content to get off of the hamster wheel. I'm content to make this the final stop in my destination to say, I walk with the Lord, I walk in his wisdom, I trust in his Savior, and I find rest for my soul. Ultimately, that's the answer that Solomon is pointing us towards. Ultimately, it's the only answer that we can find for our vain lives that are fleeting and fading into the darkness. It's the wisdom of knowing the one he sent to draw us to himself and to give us life in his name. Please join me in prayer. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for the wisdom whom you have sent into the world, your eternal word. Christ the Lord, the Savior, the Creator, one who draws us to you through himself. Oh Lord, help us as we come to your table to be content in what you provide, content in the wisdom of Christ and not our own strugglings and strivings. Help us, O oh Lord, to rest in you. We pray in Jesus' name.